This podcast is brought to you by Future Women, a new home for women to come together online and in person. Become a member to gain full access to Future Women's content, events and community. Plus, our packed calendar of member-only social club events. For more details, head to futurewomen.com. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Season 2 of Next Generation Innovators, a podcast where we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups, from ideation and development to investment and scale. Some of these women are incredibly inspiring and I cannot wait to share these conversations with you. An African parasite infection and a multi-million dollar business might not seem to go hand in hand. When Sarah Holloway returned from a trip from Africa, she came back with more than memories of an Instagrammable adventure. Within days of being home in Melbourne from the trip with her fiancé Nick Davidson, the 30-year-old then lawyer began drastically dropping weight. A few months later, she crashed with adrenal fatigue. Doctors discovered she'd been suffering with a parasite for months. I didn't realise that, you know, the symptoms kind of, it can lay dormant for a little while and I didn't really realise that I wasn't doing that well. So I went back to work and I was working, I was an M&A lawyer, so I was working really long hours and eating at my desk, not sleeping very well, not really paying that much attention to my health. In the process, lost 15 kilos because I wasn't digesting properly. The only way she could beat the parasite was with a changed diet, which involved banning coffee while she recovered. During this recovery, Sarah took a work trip to Hong Kong where she discovered matcha green tea powder. Oh, goodness. It was so random. I think the way I usually describe it is as a happy accident, and it was the happiest accident. Sarah and Nick became hooked and decided to launch a social media-driven side hustle selling matcha powder, investing just $5,000. Just six months after Matcha Maiden launched in 2015, US retailer Urban Outfitters placed a monthly 3,000 package order for six months, selling all across their US stores. After spotting the product on, you guessed it, Instagram. If Urban Outfitters in the US can find us in our garage, there's something in this that imagine if I spent all day every day on it. Sarah took a leap of faith, quit her job to focus on the booming business full time, And in 2016, the pair launched a second venture by opening up vegan cafe Matcha Milk Bar in Melbourne. In 2017, Chris Hemsworth gave a shout out to the St Kilda Cafe as part of an interview on what he loved about Australia with the New York Times. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. Uber believe good things happen when people can move, whether across town or toward their dreams. Opportunities appear, open up, become reality. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. 
Firstly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. It is so beautiful up here today. It is beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) Well, like you were saying, it's nice and sunny. It's nice and hot weather. You're dressed appropriately for Sydney, not Melbourne. I had to change though. Halfway through, I was like, I need a bathroom because I'm wearing all black. I can't do this in Sydney. That's how you identify people from Melbourne. I know. They're the only ones wearing all black. (laughs) I was like, I need to blend in to the crowds today. So I've got my yellow sunshine top on. Yes, it is very sunshiny. It looks very like light. And is it linen? It's. I think it. Yeah. It's like a cotton linen blend. Beautiful. Very light. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Very summery. Yeah. Shall we get into this? Shall we, we do absolutely it? Absolutely. Shall. Um. So, how did the original idea for Matcha Maiden come about? Oh goodness. It was so random. I think the way I usually describe it is as a happy accident and it was the happiest accident. It came about because in my first year as a lawyer, I did what no law graduate has ever done and took a whole month off before I'd even been there for a year because my partner has a creative agency and he had been doing all the digital campaigning for YGAP and their five cent campaign. And a lot of the funds go to a school in Rwanda. So as a sponsor, he was invited to go and spend a month at the school and I was lucky enough to go with him and we had a transformative month building classrooms and working with the children out in country Rwanda. Uh, And obviously you can imagine all the revelations that happened over there, but one of the things I did bring home with me unfortunately was a parasite. And I didn't realise that, you know, the symptoms kind of, it can lay dormant for a little while and I didn't really realise that I wasn't doing that well. So I went back to work and I was working, I was an M&A lawyer, so I was working really long hours and eating at my desk, not sleeping very well, not really paying that much attention to my health. In the process, lost 15 kilos because I wasn't digesting properly. Didn't notice, like just had no idea. I was really out of touch with what was happening in my body. And I ended up burning myself out into adrenal fatigue because I just didn't see the signs or, you know, know really anything about listening to your body back at that stage of my life. So in that process, I was banned from coffee because my body was just so fragile and my adrenals were completely burnt out. So every time I try and have a cup, because it's quite strong on your body, you know, I Mm. was drinking, trying to drink like 10 cups a day at the time. (gasps) Just just, to keep you going. Just to keep me going. But I would have a complete, like my hands would start shaking. My heart rate would go crazy. I'd start sweating. I was like, oh, I've always been pretty good with coffee. So I don't know what, you know, why can't my body kind of deal with it? And that was the start of the signs of something's not right. So I was banned from coffee while I recovered and any kind of stimulants that would, you know, affect my adrenals. And then I got sent to the firm's headquarters in Hong Kong to work on a deal over there and discovered matcha, mm-hmm. which is still gives you a really decent dose of caffeine. So it's almost half the amount of caffeine that coffee has. So you still get like a good buzz and a good amount of energy. But because it's a green tea leaf, not a black coffee bean, it's got a unique amino acid in it called L-theanine, which makes it slow release into your bloodstream. So instead of getting like a big boost of energy, but then a crash, you get a more sustained energy release over sort of three to four hours. And if you're caffeine sensitive or in a compromised immune state like I was, you can still tolerate it and get through your day. So I was like, wow, there's this magical healthy caffeine and everyone's, you know, into green powders and green juices and green everything. But then I came home and no one really sold it anywhere. It wasn't cool. It was, you know, in Asian groceries you could buy it, but no health food is going to go in there if you can't read the label. And then it was at T2, 
for you know $60 for a really tiny tin, which you couldn't use every day. So there was nothing in the middle that had cool branding, that had a cool website, that did free shipping, you know, all those kinds of things. So my partner and I were like, oh, let's maybe try and fill that gap. How did you get your start in business? Like what were your early steps to make this idea of yours a reality? Very, very basic. <laughs> it was such a DIY operation and everyone, you know, the typical cliche of, I looked it up on Google. It's a cliche because everyone does it and it's the best answer to every single problem you ever need to have. Even when I was a lawyer, half of my research was Google. I think one of the things that people forget when they hear about a business five years later and it looks like an overnight success and it looks big and all smooth now, they forget that at the very beginning, everyone has to start at zero and it never looks glamorous straight away. It's always, you just have to go from nil to something. And I think if we dream too big, you can scare yourself off from ever starting because it just seems so impossible. So we really, really scaled it back to like, what do we need to sell one bag? That's all we focused on for the first, you know, little period, because that's all we really needed to do was just figure out how to sell one. So we went on Google and we're like, how do you start a tea business and figured out that you need the tea firstly, a bag to put the tea in, a seal to seal the bag, a date stamp, a label, a website to put the sales through. And that's just, we just did a list of like, what are the immediate five things that you can do? And we just went online. We did Alibaba for our heat sealer. We got a little, um, like little drug scales to weigh each bag. <laughs> <laughs> so we always say, because we were packing it ourselves as well, the first year of Matcha Maiden just was like Breaking Bad, but green, just powder everywhere. <laughs> like little drug scales are like weighing up, being on the phone to each other, talking about how many grams and bags we're going to drop off. Um, but Imagine if police were like intercepting your calls. I know. For some reason. They would have thought you were drug dealers. Totally. And I was a lawyer. So I'm sitting on the phone in my law firm, like, how many bags are you dropping off later? <laughs> your colleagues would have been looking over the. I know. Like, what sort of side operation? What sort of side hustle is yeah. this girl got going on? That's here? how she works out, you know, those hours without coffee is, <laughs> yeah. is that powder that she's dealing <laughs> But yeah, I think it was very basic. We just went with like the minimum order runs of everything thing we it was just trial and error as well like we ordered some bags they came they weren't right they didn't protect the mattress enough they didn't seal properly it was really just giving things a go ordering just seeing what happens and I think everyone thinks that you have to have it right the first time and one of my favorite quotes ever is done is better than perfect it's so much better to just do it and fix it later than to wait for the perfect time because that never comes. And you don't even know what's perfect until you release it anyway. So I had to really resist my A-type perfectionist who was like, no, we can't release it yet. Uh, and my partner, Nick, has always been in business and he was such a good influence just being like, we just need to get it out. Just what's the worst, what's the minimum possible product that we could have to, to put a sale through? I love that that's your advice for starting a company. Just Google how to do it. Yeah. You make it sound so easy. Who were your um, like mentors or, or influencers in the beginning? Because, mm. uh, you know, surely there was someone who, who was guiding you through the process. Well, Nick was probably the biggest influence because he wasn't foreign to business. Like I was literally going from the opposite life structure to no structure. I went from having a five-year plan to having no five-minute plan, whereas he was used to that. He hadn't done product and he hadn't done food, but he had a lot more, you know, he was a lot more comfortable with the uncertainty of business, the spontaneity mm -hmm. of business, and also the mechanics of getting something together. 
So he kind of made so much of what would have felt so scary to me feel really normal because he's like, this is what I do every day. I just make stuff and I put it out there and I see if it works. I think that got us through the first couple of months. And then once we realized, once the, you know we launched, uh, I think we had 10,000 followers already by then. And it was at a time where, you know, Instagram was a lot more democratic. It was a lot easier and faster to grow really quickly. So we grew to selling out in our first week to getting into Urban Outfitters in the US within six months. And once it got to that stage, we realized we probably need to ask some people for help because we have no idea what we're doing. It's grown so fast. We don't even know where we should be packing it. We're not even quite sure our labels are right. Like we have really no idea what we're doing. And that I think is one of the most difficult things for people in business is that you go from having a job, having a boss, or having even four or five bosses where if you have a problem, it's so clear who you ask. Like in a law firm, you have five or six or seven people that you would ask. And if they don't know, you ask the next person. Mm -hmm. But in business, there's almost no other exact business who's done what you're doing. They might be people in a similar industry or who started 10 years before you or who have a slightly different product, then they're, they're never going to know exactly what you're doing. So, and even if they are, it's so hard to find them because you don't share offices, you're kind of really isolated. And I think people find that whole mentor gap really difficult to fill. And they often search for one person, which they, they never find because there's no one all-knowing person because your industry is moving and changing all the time. So I ended up finding different mentors for different things. And you just look out into your network ask people who, you know, cousins, friends of friends, parents of friends, reach out to people on LinkedIn, Instagram. It's a very, very nurturing small business community because everyone has been where you are and they, you know, you might never be able to pay it back to them, but they're paying it forward from someone who helped them. And then you'll do the same when you grow bigger to someone else. So just started asking people, just talking to as many people as I could. I found business owners at events or things where I knew that they'd be there and that they had food businesses. So I was, you know, if I had a packaging question, I'd ask them. I, you know, went to finance people when I wanted to know about funding. I went to export people, you know, you go to different experts or people with different experience for different things. And slowly you kind of form your net of people that you go to. And that it became kind of like an informal board almost like people you would go to when you needed help. And you're really, you can feel very, very alone, but you really are never alone because it's such a growing part of the community that are doing small business and who have always got time to help someone else because someone has always helped them. And there are amazing events like Future Women, things like that are so, so helpful to meet like-minded people who will help you out. Absolutely. I think I've been very fortunate in that way as well in, you know, picking up the phone and calling someone mm. or writing them an email or getting in contact with them through Instagram or whatever and asking for advice. And you're so, always so surprised that people totally. are so um, willing and so forthcoming with um, with information and with help. I think people really do want to help others out when they have time. Absolutely. Right? And then when someone asks you later down the track, it's such a beautiful feeling to be like, I have done this and I can save you two years of researching because I've already done it and gathered all the information. I can just hand that to you. It's a really satisfying feeling. So I understand now why they take time out of their day because I'm like, oh, it actually feels really nice to give back. But also I think the other thing I always tell people is always ask because you'll get a yes more times than you ever expect. And if, you know, worst case scenario, they say no. Yeah. What's the big deal? Like yeah. there's no, nothing lost. 
just They're not going to punch you in the face Exactly, exactly. And they'll just say, no, I don't have time. But you ask someone else and they might say yes. So always ask. Did you realise at the beginning how much you didn't know about entrepreneurship? <laughs> I think I realised how much I didn't know. I don't think I realised that I would need to know that stuff. I just didn't think it would go very far. <laughs> like I honestly thought I was a full-time lawyer. I had a whole career planned out of my head in that industry and this was play. This was like a side so hustle. this was just supposed to be a bit of fun for you. Yeah. It was meant to be a bit of fun mainly because I wanted the matcha myself and I couldn't get it and you could only order it in bulk and we had so much left over and also because Nick and I wanted to do something together because – our careers were keeping us very apart. So this was a forced way to, you know, do something new and exciting and fun that was ours. And I think I might've thought that I wanted to, you know, branch out of law eventually. I definitely didn't think that this was what would be the way to do it. So how long were you working as a lawyer while you were doing the side hustle before you thought, okay, I'm probably going to give up. Six months. Six months. Yeah. Probably four I knew. And then it took me another two to realise that I had started to be not doing either properly. I was not able to do both anymore. And for two, you know, two months after that, I was still trying and in total denial that I needed to make a big life decision. And I had a really exciting opportunity coming up in the, my legal job, um, which was an associateship with the now Chief Justice of the High Court, which is something you apply for six years in advance. They take like seven people a year. It's It's crazy. And I thought I'd wanted that for so long that I was like, oh, no, surely I don't have, surely I have to do it. So I agonised for a really long time until we got into Urban Outfitters. And that was the clincher of if Urban Outfitters in the US can find us in our garage, there's something in this that imagine Mm. if I spent all day every day on it. And imagine if, you know, that side of my personality had kind of come back in a way that I didn't even realise I'd lost it until I suddenly was like, this is what I used to do when I was a kid. I used to draw. I used to design things. I used to talk to people and make fake businesses. And I lost it along the way and then it came back out. And with a lot of guidance and many conversations with all the people I love and um, and also people I didn't know who, I, who had done similar things before, I was like, what do you think I should do? And the resounding advice was you will always be able to come back to law. It will always be there. You might not be there with the same, you know, you might be a little few years behind, but whatever it is, that industry is not going anywhere. But you might not always have this opportunity to run a business for a little while. Even if it's only a little while, like ride the wave for as long as it lasts and it'll be the best experience. And then you can go back. If you hate it, you can go back. Um, and so people like your colleagues and your Oh, no, not my colleagues. <laughs> because I was going to say, they would think that you're mad for giving up an opportunity yeah. like that. And you would always have that voice in your head thinking this is safe, this is secure. Mm, definitely. But then the other thing is fun and exciting and, and, you know, a dream. But you did it anyway. That's incredibly brave. I think you also have to ask the people who are going to give you the answer that you want. So I didn't ask anybody from law because I was I knew what they were going to say and I, I knew that was a very, very valid, you know, argument. You've got stability, you've got safety, you've got money, you've got prospects and you don't hate it. Like I actually enjoyed what I did. So it was, I knew that there was all of those considerations. What I needed to ask were people who had made the jump before, if they regretted it or if they had any advice on what to expect. And I think I have come to make every decision that same way. What is the once in a lifetime opportunity? What is the thing you can never do again? Because if you can do something again, then it doesn't matter. You can come back to it any time. 
So I knew I had my qualifications. I'd worked long enough to get a good reputation. So I'd always be able to come back. So there was really, it sounds brave, but you can talk your risk down to make it less scary. And I just talked the risk down. I was like, it's not a big risk. I'm just going and I can come back. Like, I'm just going to start a massive tea company. I'm just like, yeah, but it was small then. Yeah. You know, like I think you, you have to, I think you have to dream big always, but you have to talk it small to start. You mm-hmm. have to, there's so much mind games with yourself to just get yourself into a position where you can take that risk. And part of it is almost downplaying how big it is to make yourself feel okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Have you ever done anything wildly audacious when it comes to Match the Maiden? I mean, have you taken a huge risk that's paid off for the business and its growth? Something that, you know, could be perceived as, as being pretty risky behaviour? Oh, I think what outwardly would be the biggest risk would have been leaving my job to pursue it when it hadn't really shown its potential. Uh, like financially it was doing well but not enough to kind of sustain a wage. But it's funny looking back, I don't think of that as the biggest risk because I knew I could go back. So I didn't actually – I had a safety blanket. It's more – I think it's probably more in the, you know, third and fourth years of having all my eggs in one basket. Before I'd started the podcast, before we'd started the cafe and just throwing all our money, like we chose not to get married until we've been together 10 years. We got married this year because we wanted to put all our money into the business. Like those were the decisions more that might not have been one specific moment, but the whole act of spending like three or four years of our life pouring everything into this business without any experience, any investors, any board, that's, it's pretty risky. Like, and to buy stock, you know, the demand went from buying like one box to like pallets at a time. And that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, choosing which insurance to go with and going into the States where it's like the most litigious place in the world where, you know, food products get sued over all the time, you know, those kind of things going into those industries without really knowing that much about it. We had a situation where, we had maritime insurance, but it didn't cover certain things. And we decided, oh, whatever we need, the stock, we're just going to put it on a ship. And we lost like 10 pallets of stuff <gasps> no. and like didn't have insurance for it. You know, we've made some big, big mistakes that have taught us lessons that we really needed to learn for later. But yeah, I think I can't think of like a single time that we've made one big, crazy, audacious decision. I think the whole business was that. So those times that you were talking about where you'd left your job and you didn't have enough money to pay yourself a wage from the business yet, where did you get money from? How did you survive? Yeah, that's another reason why I often say to people, it's so exciting to be able to leave your job and and work in your own business. But even though you don't want to wait till the perfect moment and wait too long, you also don't want to jump too early. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't the business wasn't big enough to sustain a wage but it was six months old it wasn't brand new it was actually making some money and it was making enough that I could take some money out every week plus staying in my job for that six months meant that I knew that I was gonna need extra money so I saved every dollar for that six months so what no going out for dinner no buying yeah. new clothes I mean no expensive holidays yeah like no holidays no I'm not a big clothes buyer I love food I reined in my food and like we you know, cooked more and we like did everything that we could to save money so that when I did leave, I had a lot of savings sitting there to pay, to like buffer out until I could actually build the business to the point where I could take a salary. So a lot of planning goes into that bit in between where you're transitioning because 
you probably won't be able to get the business big enough to pay your wage while you're still working full time. But if you don't quit, it'll never get big enough. So there's always going to be this weird bit in the middle where you first left where you're like, Ugh. yeah, where you better get used to eating two minute noodles. Yeah. Which are actually toast. really yummy. They're so yummy. <laughs> so I didn't mind it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I wish think we had some right now. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what, what are you doing for lunch, babe? <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, I think if you can stay in your day job as long as you can to fund the business, like that's what paid for all our stock and stuff at the start was the fact that I had a, a continuous wage. I think managing your finances is the thing that might make or break whether or not you can make it. And if you jump too early without an investor or without savings, it can be really, really difficult. You kind of always want to have a bit of a buffer zone when you're first starting because it might grow faster than you think. And you might suddenly need to pay for stock that you never thought you'd need money for. And that means you have to outlay it. You can't buy a lot of these things on credit, especially when you've got no history because you've literally just started buying from a tea farm randomly as this small couple Mm. it takes a while to build those relationships so yeah I I think part of me staying the six months was also financial more than you know being risk averse and so how long then was it until you could pay yourself a wage I think it was probably another three to six months I can't remember exactly Mm -hmm. I was paying myself um a very nominal amount for that first couple of months and then by the start of the next year, so I left in the middle of the year, I think probably by the start of the next year I would have been actually paying myself properly. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I think, um, you know, that's – it seems like um, – it seems like a, a sort of a very short amount of time. You know, other people yeah. you hear of them like living in their parents' garage yeah. or whatever for like a, a period of time, which sounds pretty bloody groom to me. I'm not being, moving back to Musselbrook. I love you, mum. <laughs> if you're listening no, out there. Not happening. Sorry. <laughs> now, we know that there's no such thing as an ordinary day in business, but what are some of the constants like in your working life? What are the balls that you always have to be on top of and you always have to keep in the air to sort of keep the business running? Yeah, I think my biggest thing is just email management. Like I do, I'm kind of still the full-time operations, like the GM. So I do all of the, even if other departments are taking care of things, I'm the one that's like rerouting things to the right people. So it's really just the logistics of operations. Like I am managing the communications with the tea farm to the factory and then the packers to the distributors and I'm not necessarily like organising that freight or logistics but I'm kind of on top of like the bird's eye view of everything that's happening. So most of my day is just coordinating and pulling things together and like running timelines and making sure that everything's lining up because our supply chain is quite complicated now. Uh, And then I also do all the kind of community building and activation so there's a lot of creating content or just engaging with people on social media or planning out EDMs or working out our next events or collaborations or competitions or whatever it is that kind of creative process is also what I'm doing in the background so my immediate job every day is just like what is actually happening and who needs what and what deliveries are happening and then after that comes the okay forward planning like in a couple of weeks it's Christmas so I kind of backdate, you know, at certain times of the year, we know we have to start planning out Easter eggs now. So in the (laughs) background, you know, I'm starting to think about what we're going to do for Easter next year. And that, I mean, this is year five. In year one, we figured out like a week before Easter that it was Easter next week. So we've gotten better at like giving ourselves more time. Yeah. 
but yeah, I think I have um, gone from a very, very hands-on, like literally packing and literally sending things to um, just managing things. And then the podcast now takes up a lot of time. The cafe is pretty good, actually. It maintains itself. We've got an amazing management team, um, but I still do a lot of like the PR and the comms for that. So that's, again, lots of like coordination with events and catering. And um, if we had do new menus, I do the photography. Like I love the variety. Um, so a good chunk of my day is the same, but a good chunk of it then afterwards is also very different every day. So I don't really work from anywhere. I kind of work from everywhere and I love that. It took me a really long time to get used to how to manage my energy when I don't have a consistent place to be and a time to be there. But yeah, I love it now. And do you think that you'll ever move away from having that bird's eye view where you know what's going on in each part of the business? Do you think eventually it'll get so big that you won't be able to maintain that and you'll have to share the load? And mm. how will you deal with, you know, having <laughs> parts of your baby for other people to look after? Yeah, I think it's already gotten to that point where things fall through the cracks sometimes because I'm still trying to hold on and trying to, even if I've let go of some of the details, there are some that I won't. And then it's like, I just can't possibly keep that all in my my brain. So I think we're getting to the point now where, I need to hand parts of it over. There are big parts I've handed over, like social media I've handed over to Angelina's one of our amazing all-rounders. She just kind of works across all our businesses and is a really good friend. Um, Nick does all the creative and web and digital, which has always been his big part of the business. And then he does a lot of the the cogs and the numbers and the figures and forecasting. My mum is full-time in the business and she runs wholesale. So that's her little department or well, big department, but that's all hers. So slowly, slowly things are outsourcing and we outsource a lot, all our packing, like a lot of things are outsourced so we don't have to have permanent staff. But um, I think there will come a point where it's too big for me and I can feel that tension kind of pushing. You can feel it happening now. Yeah, I think I probably all year have felt it, it coming to the start of a new chapter that is a size that I almost now hold it back because I'm not able to do that bigger picture thinking because it just I don't have the experience of a food business to do it. Um, now wellness is having its moment at the <laughs> moment, so to speak. Do you worry about how your business will evolve um, if that changes, if that sort of environment around that trend mm. changes? I did at the start a lot. I think we had, you know, we launched at the end of 2014, so it was really the start of 2015 and then 2016 was this exponential boom of matcha like it was matcha's year and it was more after that that I was like oh my gosh what happens now like after a boom what happens to these products yeah we don't want to go the way of the goji berry exactly I know but then there are also things like quinoa that kind of never flopped they might have gone from their exponential crazy wave but then they kind of stabilized so that's what we looked at. We looked at things like the goji berry and then we looked at the things like acai that haven't gone through a big flop phase and still are out there as like they've now established themselves as mainstream products. We were like, we want to do that. So how do we do that? And that worry has now been alleviated, I think, by having survived another three years since then and mm -hmm. continued growing. And I think your focus just shifts from educating people about something new to taking the novelty part out of it and making it seem like it was always there to begin with. Like match has been around for centuries. Like it's going to be around for another, you know, <laughs> hundred centuries. Like, you know, you yeah. kind of change the way you market it from, you know, a novelty, new, exciting product to a staple. And because it's green tea and it, because it's not that, you know, 
it's not that foreign and it's not that weird. It's not like spirulina where you kind of go, or goji berries where it's like, what is this weird thing I've never heard of? When matcha came out, people had heard of green tea. So it was easier to kind of shift it to like, this is something you need every day in mm-hmm. your pantry all the time. Uh, and I think you just get used to the market moving so fast that you just have to adapt. So when a new trend comes in, we just make a matcha blend with that new thing so that then you're always adapting with whatever's happening. But you also have your hero product all the time as well. So it's not something I worry about so much because I think the health the health and more conscious consumer is only going to get more prominent in society. I think that's just the way that we're all moving. We're much more aware of the choices we make and the impact it has as the world kind of pushes us towards that and the consequences of the things we do become more dire. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, everyone's more conscious of what they put in their body and the effects of that and uh yeah but if it did go a different way I think I now trust our ability to adapt yeah a lot more than I once did and pivot yeah I think we've gotten better at it over time well I definitely have at the start I was like no we need a business plan whereas now I'm like whatever just see what happens do you think as well it comes with trusting your own ability and believing that what you've built is due to um the fact that you're skilled and, and clever rather than just being just a bit of luck. Yeah, totally. And that takes a long time. But once you get there, I think you. I, I think it's only really clicked over for me this year of being like, I probably actually didn't just wing it. Like yeah. maybe I did a little bit, but I, I probably thought probably about it a little bit. Good. Yeah, like maybe I can do some stuff. Like not all the stuff, <laughs> yeah. but maybe some of the stuff. Maybe most of it. <laughs> so, how do you define success? What What will be, or what has been your "I've made it" moment? Oh, that's such a good one and such a hard one. Success for me is something I think about so much and the whole podcast is based around the whole idea that we go after success so hard. We're such a goal-kicking society, which is amazing and you can literally create a dream life and then go and live it, which is so exciting. But I think it often gets confused in the ideas of money and milestones and promotions and like goalposts of measurable things. But I've tended to shift away from those things because I realize either they don't make you happy or you get there and you're happy for five minutes and then you set a new one. And so you're really never actually happy because you just keep replacing them. What success has come to mean to me is the feeling attached with being fulfilled and feeling happy and joyful that I'm using my talents, I'm using my skills, that someone's getting something out of that and that I'm making an impact or changing someone's day or, you know, I attach it much more to feelings than I do to like milestones. I, I feel like I'm doing a good job. Mm-hmm. I feel like every day I make someone smile with something that I'm doing, either an episode or a quote or a conversation. And that's overall, like combined day to day makes me feel like I'm successful in what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. I think it's a very internal, personal gauge of where you're at. I think there's so much more that I still want to do, but I think in the things that I care about right now, I'm doing well at them. So what's next for you and Match Maiden and your podcast? <gasps> what what plans have you got for the future? Oh, gosh. Well, I think as I have for the last few years – November and December is when I really start to think about what I want the next year to be. I'm a very big um, New Year's resolution person. I don't actually know what they are just yet, but I think 
you know, we just got married two weeks ago. <gasps> Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It was just. You kept that quiet. It was just a dr- If you go and look at my Instagram, I have been not like the opposite Non-stop of quiet. Posting. Yeah. <laughs> like spam. On, like everything. Yeah. Um, I think. You know, one of the things that that really reminded me of is just how beautiful it is to spend time with the people you love and have your family around and that we want to have kids soon and start thinking about setting up our life for that because at the moment we're way too spontaneous and just like disorganised. Um, I have a book on the way which oh, is really exciting. exciting. So that I think will be a big part of next year. Uh, and I haven't really set what my big kind of legacy piece will be for next year but I think – that the book will be my main focus for the next couple of months because that's due quite early next year. The podcast will continue to grow. I've done an episode or more every week for 64 weeks now. Wow. I might take, you know, a couple of weeks off over Christmas, New Year's and then come back next year and do another big year on that. Matcha, I have no idea what's going to happen. Definitely some kind of restructuring to make more room for the things that I love doing with CZA and with the book and hopefully there'll be a book tour um, and just lots more, yeah, lots more of the yay and lots more of helping other people find that in their life. Do you think that you'll ever be someone who does just one thing, you know? That is do such you think an interesting question. Do you wind it back and just do the podcast or just do a bit of the tea business? I, just do a bit of the cafe? It's so funny that you asked that because I recently was thinking about that and I think – at times in my life and over the last, the most recent chapter, I've needed to have lots of different things going on, but I almost think I'm coming back to that place of wanting to have just one thing. And when I was, you know, often people will say, do you miss the law firm at all? Is there anything about having a job that you miss? Like annual leave, you know, a salary, <laughs> predictability, all those things. And the biggest thing I miss is having one focus. And I think that as time goes on, And as maybe I do become more like I want to have kids and I want to make a little bit more time to be a present parent and not just like a complete headless chook like I am most of the time, maybe I do want to scale back and be a bit more focused and purposeful and intentional because I do get very distracted. We get very distracted by shiny things because we have so many ideas all the time. So we're like, yay, let's do everything. And Nick and I do spend a lot of time very tired and wondering why we say yes to all the things that we do. But then we also love it. So... And you sort of want to strike while the iron is yeah. hot as well, don't you? Yeah. I think probably with the book, like four things on the go is probably a bit much to sustain for much longer, but I don't really know how I would reshuffle. I think there's a lot of reflection to do in the next couple of months. Can't wait to see what those New Year's resolutions yeah, are. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm like, oh, God, they're going to be big ones this year. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining oh, us on Next you Generation so Innovators. You are an inspiration and I can't wait to try some of this tea. Oh, I'll have to send you some. Thank you so much for having me. That was the effervescent and lovely Sarah Holloway. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast again this week. Please, if you like the podcast, share it with some friends and tell us what you think in the comments. Have a great week. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. 